Thank you, Larry, for your kind words. I also want to thank the entire Board of Governors for their confidence in me by placing me among the august list of previous recipients of this highest award of the Canada Law Society of America. When President O'Keefe telephoned me on that last Friday of January at the end of the Board of Governors meeting, I thought it was only to inform me that the board had given the final approval to the publication of what we have come to call simply as the guide. However, he definitely surprised me when he proceeded to tell me that I was to give a talk at this convention. Knowing that the convention presentations had already been established, I was puzzled. It was then that he told me that the Board of Governors had voted that I should receive this prestigious award. I must say that receiving this news caused me to do some soul searching. How did I get to this point? It was then that I thought that the very title of this award was worthy of more reflection on my part and that it should be the burden of my presentation this evening. When I thought of the title of this award, Rule of Law, I thought of how our society's constitution begins. We, the members of the Canada Law Society of America, ever eager, ever eager to fulfill our role in the church through the proper use of canon law, hereby proclaim our desire to promote the use of every method of serving God's people that comes under the concept of law. This sentence really declares the principal focus of our professional society. As Canadists, we have a particular role in the church. We apply, we implement the law of the church or advise those who do so. In other words, it seems to me that we Canadists are at our best when we never lose sight of the basics and when we are ever mindful of how law and the overall pastoral ministry of the church work together. I was in the minor seminary when blessed Pope John 23rd was elected Pope. I remember how all of us were excited that following January when he announced that there would be an ecumenical council. And we all remember how the good Pope John announced this council at and at the same time announced the revision of the Code of Canon Law. The council came to a close not long before I was ordained a priest. This code was to implement the changes of the Second Vatican Council. Although the Code Commission was officially formed rather quickly after Blessed Pope John XXIII announced the proposed proposed revision or updating of the Code of Canon Law, it was not really until 1967 that the Code Commission really began its work in earnest. It did so only after the first synod of bishops had given the 10 principles for the revision of the code. I feel a rather personal closeness to the synod since the first time I set foot in the Grand Basilica of St. Peter's was at the opening mass of that first synod of bishops. The very first principle of revision set forth by the Senate stated two things. 
the social nature of the church, namely that it is both visible and composed of human beings, necessitates that the new code would have a juridic character. And secondly, the code was to furnish norms so that the members of the Christian faithful might have a share in the goods offered by the church to lead them to eternal salvation. Four times in their principles of revision, the fathers of the synod made clear that the laws of the church are geared towards the facilitation of the pastoral care of souls. So, so small wonder then that the legislator enshrined this concept in the last canon of the code in that oft quoted phrase, salus animarum suplemer lex. The Synod was, of course, opened only a couple of years after the closing of the Second Vatican Council. The conciliar document on the church had made it clear that the church is a mystery, namely that it is both a spiritual and a visible reality. Thus, if it is a visible reality, as the first principle of revision points out, laws are necessary for the church because humans need laws as social beings. In the decree on priestly training, the Second Vatican Council said the teaching of the of canon law should take into account the mystery of the church according to the dogmatic constitution de ecclesia promulgated by the sacred synod. Thus the ten principles of revision reflected much of the dialogue which took place during the ecumenical council. Although between 1967 and 1983, there were to be other influences which came to bear upon the framing of the present law, the 1983 Code of Canon Law, and as well, the 1990 Code of Canons of the Eastern Churches, both bear the imprint of those 10 principles. The times in which we live seem to require more of us for example, the magnitude of the sexual abuse of minors by clergy and its effect upon the image of the church, sad to say, has given definition to our present times. Doubtlessly, there have been serious failings in addressing behavior of clergy, which have been crimes both in civil and canon law. Have these serious failings stemmed from an inadequacy of the knowledge of the laws of the church? Has canon law become irrelevant or unworkable in addressing the sexual abuse issues? However, we can hope that one of the effects of the publicity surrounding these crimes and failures to address them has not been to make the people of God think our church laws are inadequate to the task, keeping in mind always the legitimate role of civil authorities to intervene and to investigate and punish crimes in civil law. Notwithstanding how tragic and difficult the times in which we live have become on so many fronts, including canonical ones, these times call us canonists to avoid hand-wringing and to pursue a deeper and more comprehensive study of our discipline so that we may properly, responsibly, and carefully address these issues. I believe a signal was sent out about the importance of canon law and these serious problems 
by the creation of a special commission composed of members of the hierarchy of the United States and three high right three high-ranking members of the pertinent dicasteries of the Holy See to ensure that the essential norms approved in Dallas for which the Holy See's recognitio was requested will be more evidently consistent with the general law structure of the church. The Dallas Charter and the proposed essential norms contained many references to observing the norms of the Code of Canon Law. However, the work of the Mixed Commission went a long way to making a, the courageous and compassionate response of our bishops also to be seen as consistent with the general law of the church. This thrust of the Mixed Commission, together with the continued canonical issues we face, gives support to each of us in recommitting ourselves to a more regular and deeper study of our laws, their roots, and their foundation, so that we can be better equipped to face the questions of the future. There have been, there has been much important research and study devoted to the solving the of the problems surfaced by the current crisis, and much more work is still needed. Close on the future's horizon is the prospect of reviewing and perhaps revising the essential norms. A footnote to the essential norms stated this, two years after recognition has been received, these norms will be evaluated by the plenary assembly of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. The evaluation of these norms pertains ultimately to the USCCB, However, canonists will inevitably be involved, in my opinion, in the evaluation process. It is difficult to say what direction such an evaluation and any revision might take. However, some of the issues which have been mentioned in the dialogue, which has taken place so far, would include assessing what canonical institutes would best address the situation of clergy who have certainly transgressed the sixth commandment of the Decalogue. What is the proper rule for prescription in criminal cases? How do we balance the needs for investigation of the facts, protecting the young, and protecting the reputation of those who could be innocent? Interwoven among all these issues are questions of the public good. We have entered a new and thorny era it is my opinion that canonists need to be well-grounded in order to be part of the solution. It's my thesis that remaining a true student of the law is the best preparation for addressing these difficult questions and every other important question for the church with canonical implications. It is not enough that we look to the code of canon law only when we have to put out ecclesial fires. We really should be continual students of the law. And here I am conscious of the words of Cardinal André Julien, the former dean of the Roman Rota, who in his book on the judges and the advocates of the ecclesiastical tribunals, strongly urged the canonists to read the code from cover to cover every year, and even to do some reading of the code every day. 
The Cardinal specifically cautions his readers against concluding that he was advocating simply memorizing the canons. He rather challenges canonists to be to a thoughtful reading of the law, which is designed to penetrate to the core of the material, including making comparisons with other canons which have a bearing on the one in focus at the moment. He advises including in such a study whatever is relevant from the philosophy of law and the history of law. Often we are tempted to go first to the commentary when we are trying to solve a problem. The Cardinal urges personal reading and analysis of the canons before going into the commentaries or to the proven and established authorities who have written on the subject. When it comes to our study, I think there is reason to regard his quotation from Pope Benedict XIV as a good guide to the understanding of the tenor of canon law. The sacred canons of the church look to nothing other than equity and the salvation of souls. In our time, this society continues to provide a forum in which all of us are challenged to serious thinking and study. We have come to this convention and have participated in the seminars and attended the major addresses in order to encourage our growth in the knowledge of the law and the institutes of the law. Over the years, I have found that if one serves on a committee, depending on the committee's mandate, the project challenges canonical thinking and forces research. Of course, when we have to write a sentence in a more difficult case, we have the challenge to develop ourselves and go beyond the use of canned law sections as that we sometimes use to more rapidly complete our work. The CLSA publications serve as a resource for a, for a serious study and application of canon law. In a word, our CLSA continues to be a resource for us canonists, but there is no substitute for dedicated personal and organized study using all these resources. To quote the famous phrase which opens Charles Dickens' novel, Tale of Two Cities, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. These words apply to our age. And sometimes we feel acutely the latter half of that phrase, but we're all called to rise to the occasion. Each of us as canonists have a part to play, large or small, in the solution of the complex problems facing the church. Therefore, the phrase role of law continues to hold considerable meaning for me. I really believe it calls out to those involved in canon law in any way to constantly be conscious of the position canon law plays in the life of the church. Cicero once advised that the magistrate is the law speaking. Therefore, such a person, who by extension includes all who have any administrative or judicial role in the church, should by all rights thoroughly know the law. Sources of our law point out in many places that the truth is the focus 
of all the decisions of the church, decisions made under the law. These same sources also repeatedly urge that every decision be made having only God before our eyes. Schmaltzgruber stated as he began his treatise on the ecclesiastical judge, the first rule that every judge must follow, whether ecclesiastical or secular, is God. Further, when judges pronounce a sentence, they often add the words, having God before the eyes and in the spirit. Pope Alexander III, who reigned in the latter half of the 12th century, addressed the Bishop of Vercelli in Italy, as well as the Abbot of Tileto, whose location I could not find, on the procedures for investigating a claim of an ecclesiastical crime. He advised proceeding, having only God before the eyes, moving forward along the royal way without regard to personages. As you know, the sentences of the Roman Rota typically end using this same phrase. Having sufficiently considered everything in law and in fact, we, the undersigned fathers and auditors of this Turnus, sitting for the tribunal and having only God before our eyes, having invoked the name of Christ, we declare, discern, and definitively decide, responding as follows to the proposed doubt. Tonight, I have given you a few personal reflections on the meaning of the phrase, role of law. For me, the law is intended to be a handmaid for the people of God, which term the Second Vatican Council used as the most general one for the church itself, after describing the church as mystery. Thus, we canonists would do well not only to continue our serious study of the law, but at the same time recall that the law is intended as the first synod of bishops indicated to always have in sharp focus the pastoral good of souls. If we are to apply the law correctly in this church, which we call both mystery as well as people of God, if we are to regard the supreme law, the salvation of the souls, then we must always carry out our craft, frame our decisions, as well as our continued study, having only God before our eyes.